You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now I want to turn to God's Word, but before doing so, I want to pray again. And I love using this book, The Valley of Vision. And I read this prayer this morning, and not only did I think it was appropriate for myself, but appropriate for us all. So uh, I'm going to read part of it as a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, there is much ill about me. Crucify it. Much flesh within me. Mortify it. Purge me from selfishness, the fear of man, the love of approbation, the shame of being thought old-fashioned, the desire to be cultivated or modern. Let me reckon my old life dead because of crucifixion and never feed it as a living thing. Grant me to stand with my dying Savior, to be content, to be rejected, to be willing to take up unpopular truths, and to hold fast despised teachings until death. Help me to be resolute and Christ-contained. Never let me wander from the path of obedience to Thy will. Strengthen me for the battles ahead. Give me courage for all the trials and grace for all the joys. Help me to be a holy, happy person, free from every wrong desire, from everything contrary to thy mind. Grant me more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule me. May I walk in its power and be strengthened through its influence. Amen. Amen. I read this uh, yesterday, actually. Church is the one place where people who are weary and heavy laden should be able to come and find rest so that when they leave, they feel lighter, that the pressure's off. They're reminded that everything you need, God has done for you in Jesus and given to you. This is Billy Graham's grandson, by the way, uh, saying this. Oftentimes, people don't leave worship services feeling like that. They feel more burdened because they've been given a to-do list. They've been given a checklist of things they must do if they're going to be a good Christian, a checklist of things they must do if they want God to really love them and even like them. Well, we are going to, uh, we say this is a pledge Sunday, and people think that's about money, and uh, it's not going to be, it's going to be about a whole lot of other things, but what I do not want it to be is a checklist that you tick and you go, yes, 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 or that you actually just get really resentful at and uh, tired and weary and exhausted. One of the reasons that so many of us are exhausted is because we live by performance rather than by grace. And uh, if you were at a fellowship group on Wednesday or Thursday, and you're in the same place our fellowship group is looking at Galatians, Keller's studies on Galatians, um, we were looking at something that is really difficult to grasp, the relationship between the law of God and and, and grace. And uh, it was heavy, heavy going in the sense of trying to get, to get this balance right, trying to understand what Scripture says. And as we uh, look at, we are, we are going to look at John 21, but it'll take us a wee while to get there. Uh, as we look at that, and the, real, the, the question, the key question is whether we love Jesus or not, it, it's a question of understanding what the grace of God is. Because I think, 
most of us. The default position for all of us is that if you're like a wee child, if you're good, you get sweets, and if you're bad, you get punished. Uh, that there's a, you know an element of truth in that. The notion of God giving us something, not just something, but His Son, His righteousness, His goodness, despite the fact that we deserve the complete opposite, is one that is really hard to grasp. And as we were looking at on Wednesday and Thursday, we were looking at this whole idea of having begun by faith, far too many Christians continue by works, and we, we justify ourselves and our lives and our churches by works. And I, I do want to think of, of each of us as individuals. Uh, you're a visitor here. I want you to think about your relationship with God. You're uh, here all the time. I want you to think about your relationship with God, and, but also collectively as a church, how we justify our existence and how we progress and advance as a church, because there are some dangers that I would like us to point out. So we'll go to the beginning. We're going to look at Peter, and um, initially, I want to look at his calling. When he started, Mark 1, verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Peter was called, he's fishing, and this man comes up to him and says, come on, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There has to have been more to it than that, but even if there was, it's just, it's just an astonishing thing. That's what Christianity is. That's what becoming a Christian is. It's repent, believe, give up, follow, work. When I became a Christian, I knew I was doing that. I knew that there was no halfway measures. I knew it wasn't about being religious. I knew that I was giving my life to Jesus. And that's why it was so hard to do. Because many times I wanted to say, Lord, can I give you this much? Can I give you this much? I can't give you it all. Simon knew he had to give it all. And when you become a believer, you do not become a believer, kind of half believer. You give everything to Jesus Christ. And that surely is what we do as a church. That is how we begin as a church and how we continue. Um, for those of you who don't know, just I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of this church. Not back to McShane's day. A very famous preacher, Robert Murray McShane. has a very good book called Awakening that you can buy if you want. <laughs> but but um, and it'll tell you something about it. But I want to go back uh, 21 years to if you'd come into this church then, 21 years ago today you would have come into a building that up in that corner, never mind about being cold this morning, it was, the roof was falling in, it was dull, dreary, depressing, um, never mind the lighting just now, you would have had uh, yellow screens 
on that, and you had a great big light up there that beamed orange onto my head, and that made me look like something out of, I don't know, Star Wars or something. It was just, it was, it was cold, it was dark, and it was miserable, and there was a handful of people. And nobody then, nobody saw that one day we would use the balcony or anything like that. The whole idea was, let's see if we can just survive and be a witness in this place. But myself and Annabelle had come here, and two children, Andrew and Becky. Emma Jane came along later. And uh, we knew, we knew that even that small group, all we could do was repent, believe, give, follow, tell people about Jesus, and see what happened. Well, Peter goes on. He has some ups. Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my, by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Peter confessed Christ and is given a privileged position. God has blessed us in this church. We have confessed Christ, and we preach Christ, and we teach Christ, and we have been privileged to see many people who have either come to faith in Christ or had their faith renewed and strengthened. The Christian life is one of many, many ups and many, many joys, and we rejoice in that. But it's also one of downs. Immediately after, from that time on, Jesus began to, ex- to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. From being called the rock, from being told that upon his confession, the whole church would be built, Peter immediately is used to hinder the work of Christ because he did not have in mind the things of God. Luke 22 records how Peter fell in that he boasted he would never deny Jesus. And yet Jesus warns him precisely how he would deny him. And despite having been warned, Peter ends up denying Jesus. The rock, somebody who's used by Satan, and somebody who stumbles and falls and goes against Jesus Christ. It's, for me, one of the most incredibly difficult things about being a Christian. Lord, don't let me get in the way of your work. How could Peter do that? He didn't understand in the first one, you could say. But in the second one, he did understand, and he did know. 
And I'm telling you this, that the biggest hindrance to the work of the gospel in this church is you and me as Christians. The greatest opposition the gospel will ever get will be from those who are professing believers in Jesus Christ who hinder the work of Christ. It can happen in, in, in churches and uh, it, can, it can happen to any one of us. Think about our own situation here in St. Peter's. Let's bring it a little bit up to date. Six years ago, three things happened. We were a congregation of about 80 people. There was a lady who had died, Jean Graham, who had left us 40,000 pounds in her will, and we decided to use the money to investigate redoing the building. We then decided to redo the building at a cost of 800,000 pounds. You are very good at math, so you work it very quickly. 40,000, 800,000, bit of a gap. Yes, there was a bit of a gap. Um, but we went ahead and did it anyway. The congregation voted, I think, something like uh, 98% to, to do that and to commit to do it. And we said that people would commit for a period of five years. That's been done, and we've come to this stage. The building was done, and it's been a great blessing to us. The second thing that happened is a personal thing for me, but had an impact on the congregation. Um, I went into Waterstones and picked up and read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion and wrote a response, which then became a book, which then resulted in me being invited to speak all over the place. And I remember uh, the elders meeting with me, and we talked about how this would impact the ministry. Bottom line is that some were thinking, you're on your way out of here. And I said, no, I can't. I can't leave St. Peter's, but I can't not do evangelism. And so we committed ourselves to do these two things, to, to maintain and to, to grow and to build the congregation here and also to do outreach and evangelism. And the elders agreed that I could uh, do the evangelism in other congregations where we got no direct benefit part of the time, and we ended up appointing Brian Key as assistant. That was the second thing. The third thing that happened was that uh, I approached the Free Church General Assembly and asked if we could sing hymns and musical instruments as well as, and use musical instruments as well as the Psalms. And to be honest, I expected to lose my job. I expected to be unemployed. But the Free Church, in a wonderful providence of God, and for some of you, you may think, this is nothing. But it was a big deal. Uh, took four years to pray about, to investigate, and uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the Free Church changed its position on worship so that we would still continue to sing the Psalms as we do, but would also allow congregations, if they wished, to use musical instruments and sing scriptural hymns and songs. Those were the three things that happened. What's happened since then? The congregation has grown and developed in many ways. The Free Church, as a denomination, changed its position and did not split, despite what everyone thought would happen. We planted a church in St. Andrews that we planted 10 years ago. It's now grown up and is ready to leave the mother church. They're meeting this morning and they have a problem because they are absolutely full to the door and they're looking for a new place to meet. The community children's work in Charleston has begun. We stopped recruiting American missionaries through MTW and we got more. Um, for which I'm very thankful for those of you who are. Uh, Solas has developed uh, and Tom and Jan are, are leading that. Will and Judy are, are helping with so many things, and Brian and Carsey. 
are, uh, have replaced the REMS. Scott and Jen and Megan have come to work with CMF and the students. But there are many other wonderful people who have been added. Many new members, people converted, covenant children brought into the world. We, uh, when we came here in 1991, 1992, sorry, there were uh, no children in the congregation. Uh, we had a presbytery visit about 12 years ago in which Neil McMillan lamented the, still the lack of children and said we should have family services, and we said no. Uh, I've always joked with him, it's the power of Neil McMillan. Ever since that day, we have not had a time when there's not been someone in the congregation who's been pregnant, uh, and the creche has grown exponentially. And that's a blessing. New elders and new deacons. Cap is about to start. Sinclair and Dorothy Ferguson have also come to help. There is so much to be thankful for. Yet here's my burden. My burden is this, that it's far too easy for us to become a club, that we can be distracted from the work of God, and that the very growth itself results in pressures to turn away from what is the central focus of this congregation. When you've only got a handful of people and you teach the Bible and people start coming in, it's obvious to people to teach the Bible. But when you've got a lot of people, the pressure is on to change that. Eric Alexander told me uh, many years ago that I would come under enormous pressure to give everyone what they wanted in terms of the church. And he was so right. And for me personally, my burden is this. I only know one way to do church. And it's a very simple way, and I I read about lots of different things like emergent church and different ways of doing things and, and so on, and I only know one way, and it's simply this, to teach the Bible and to pray and to have fellowship and to bring the good news to people. We are in enormous danger of wandering in that way. What I mean by being a club is this, that we can... You attend a club, you pay your dues, and then you just get on with your lives. I think we are in enormous danger, many of us anyway, of losing sight of the basics and losing our first love. And I'll tell you what happens with that. You don't stop coming to church, but you get tired, you get angry, you get frustrated, you become overworked, or you withdraw. Maybe God challenges us and is constantly challenging us to go deeper. It's about fruit and priorities. I spoke at a church in Perth this week. They had a week of prayer a few weeks ago, seven to eight every morning, a congregation of 200 people, 150 people came to that week of prayer. Now, It's a church where I would look at one or two aspects of it and go, no, that's not right, that's not biblical, and so on. And I had an interesting conversation with the pastor about some of that. But I'll tell you this, when they've got 150 out of 200 people being prepared to come and pray, there's something right, something very right. We've got, I hope this is not boasting, we've got very, very good teaching in terms of biblically sound doctrine. But I think in some of the basics, we're very weak. And one of them is surely prayer. I believe that God loves us, 
and that he won't just leave us, leave us like that. He loves us too much. And in his church, he shakes us up. He calls us to repentance and reminds us of his love for us and renews us. I've seen it several times in these past 21 years. I've seen this congregation be shaken and grown and developed. Well, that is what God does, and that is what we see happening. Turn now to John 21, and you'll see what happened with Peter after he had backslidden, if you like, after he had denied Christ. And let's just read this. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed abroad and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus reinstates Peter, reinstates him as a leader in the church. I love the detail. We don't have time to go into it, but he denied Jesus by a fire. 
Now he's reinstated by a fire. He denied Jesus three times. Now he reaffirms his love three times. I love the way that Jesus approaches Peter after a meal, after spending time with him. Sometimes the Lord is with us, but only later on begins to address the real deep issues in our life. Some of you are glad to come into church and glad to be in the presence of Jesus and glad to hear the gospel being taught, but there are issues in your life that God is not dealing with you yet because they are too deep. And as you continue to come and hear God's word, it's not that you're just hearing the old story, it's that things are changing for you. It's that, there is, that, that, that God is working a deeper work in your life. And that's what we constantly and continually have to look for. I love the way that he calls Peter Simon, his original name. Simon, have you gone back to being Simon? Are you no longer Peter the Rock? I love the question, do you love me? Not do you honor me or fear me or believe me. They are all included in that, but do you love me? The question, do you love me more than these? Which could either be understood, do you love me more than you love your friends? Or, do you love me more than these people love me? Because Peter had boasted that he loved Jesus more than anyone else. And either way, that applies to us. There are those of us who are Christians, and the Lord says to us, do you love me more than you love your family? Do you love me more than you love your job? Do you love me more than you love yourself? Or maybe the Lord is saying to us, you boasted about your Christianity and about how you were sound and you're solid. And you look down at other Christians who stumble and fall. Do you really love me more than they love me? How do we know that? Peter, this time, makes no comparison. He makes no comparison at all. He says, you ask them. The test for us is whether we love Jesus. Now, I've said this often, and I have to confess to a particular mistake here, and maybe an overemphasis. I've often emphasized that love is not just a feeling, and that it's a matter of obedience and a matter of commitment. That's true, but when it's overemphasized, it can give the wrong impression. Kelly Kapich in uh, Table Talk says this, commitment is vital, certainly, but is that really all we mean by love? I am happy if my wife is committed to me, but, I'm sh but I sure hope she feels something good too. Marriage is based on contractual obligation alone and not nourished by the waters of affection, tenderness, and grace lead us to the cold of winter, not the warmth of spring. There is a danger in turning love into duty, into saying, we come and worship on Sunday, we give, we commit in our pledges, we, we read God's word, we evangelize because of a sense of duty and to show our commitment to Jesus. It's right that that is the case, but there's something wrong if that is solely the case, and that easily turns into a works righteousness. The answer is surely this. We love him because he first loved us. 
1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Jesus went out, went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and showed his disciples the full extent of his love, ultimately by dying on the cross. Peter boasted, I will never deny you, before he knew the full extent of Christ's love. Now, he doesn't boast. Now, he responds in love. Now, he's hurt when Jesus asks him, do you love me? He's hurt because after what Jesus has done for him, how could he not love him? And how could Jesus not know that? And here's the problem. I will stand up as a preacher And I will say, we should be doing this, and we should be doing that, and we should be doing that. And it becomes a checklist that lays burdens. And some of you will will tick that box, and you'll become self-righteous and and proud and say, yeah, I do that. And others won't, and realize I can't. And you'll be really beat up inside you and, and really struggling. And the trick is that in actual fact, we have to see Jesus we have to realize that it is by grace. And as we respond to that grace, we then change. God doesn't need our time, and he doesn't need our money, and he doesn't need our gifts. But he wants them, and he wants to use them for our good. I uh, paid a brief brief visit to my folks up in Port Mahomet this week. And uh, there's a running sore in our family that I want to share with you. I want you to feel my pain. Um, My dad has a chainsaw, and he lets, he uses that chainsaw, and he uses it to chop logs. I have always wanted to use that chainsaw. He's never let me use the chainsaw. I don't know why. He lets my sister, who's younger than me, use the chainsaw. And this week, he let my son use the chainsaw. But would he let me use the chainsaw? No. Maybe it's because he values me so much that if they chop off their legs, it's not a problem. But maybe he thinks there's something slightly psychotic with me. I don't know. Uh, I I, I want to use the chainsaw, and I hope he listens to the internet of this. And the next time I go up, he says, son, it's about time. Here's the chainsaw. Uh, I want to use that chainsaw. Now, having got that off my chest, when you're a father, and you get your child to be involved with something that you're doing, that you know that you can do better. You don't need them. You can just do it a whole lot better. Well, first time I drove a tractor, my dad didn't need me to drive the tractor. He could drive the tractor a whole lot better. Why does he get you to do it? Because it's the pleasure of working together with and learning. And our Father in heaven doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our gifts and talents. When somebody stands up and says that the only hands God has got in Scotland are yours, that's not actually true. God can do as he pleases. But what he pleases is to use us. When you give to God, you don't give as somebody is saying, well, Lord, you need this. You give because it's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to share in the work of God. You see, Peter is told three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my people. 
It's a whole lot easier to care for God's people if you love Jesus Christ. That's how we do it. I think there are too many Christians who think, I'm going to love Jesus by caring for people, and I'm going to get to love Jesus more by caring for people, where actually the priority is the other way around. You get to know what Jesus has done. You get to know who Jesus is. You love him. And because you love him, you then do mercy ministries. You then share with people and so on. Because when you love Jesus first, when you then care for other people, it's not patronizing. It's not about yourself. It's not about trying to get yourself to a certain level. It's just simply because you love Jesus. That should be our motivation. Now, Peter is told he's going to be killed and humiliated. But he's told that before then, Christ would use him. 3,000 were converted after his first sermon. Cornelius was converted. He wrote two books of the Bible. You and I are free to serve, to give, to share, to pray, to worship, not because we're afraid, not because we're trying to earn our salvation or atone for our sin, not because we want to please others or demonstrate our goodness, but simply because we love. God loves a cheerful giver. So the key question is not how much will you give or how much will you use in your time or how will you do this or what will you do? The key question is Jesus simply asking, do you really love me. I think we're at a crossroads. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And what did he mean? Follow him along the beach, but a whole lot more. I think we as a fellowship have so many demands. This building here uh, will take, we need 6,000 pounds a month over the next 10 years. If interest rates go up, it'll be a lot more. It's amazing that we've been able, by God's grace, to do that. There are so many things to volunteer for. I almost dread coming in and getting notices. Can we volunteer for this and volunteer for that and volunteer? And some of you are thinking, oh, this is just so overwhelming. And that's true. We have so much need to pray and so little time. I've just been reading a book by Kevin DeYoung, Crazy Busy. I almost didn't read it because I was too busy to read it, uh, which is a supreme irony. I think that what we have to do, all of us, myself included, is renew our vows to follow Jesus Christ and to serve him in this congregation. When I came here in 1992, I told the Free Church trustees I was committed for 10 years. When we read the building, I promised the trustees who gave us the loan for the building that as long as you guys wanted me and I stayed in good health, I would remain here until it all been paid off. But really, my commitment's not to the building nor to the organization. My commitment is very simple. It's to the people who are walking down the Perth Road. It's to the people who are living in Charleston and elsewhere in this city. I hope that ultimately it is a commitment to the Lord. The building is fantastic because it helps us communicate Jesus Christ to people around, and that's what it's used for. It's not the other way around. We don't use the Lord for the building. We use the building for the Lord. And the same with anything else that we have. And I long for, I I will be honest about this, I long for the day when Stuart comes up to me and says, oh, the debt on the building is all paid. Not because that means we give less, but because it means that having spent a million pounds on the building, we can then give a million pounds away to communicate the gospel elsewhere and fund some of the amazing people that God is sending us to communicate that wonderful news of the gospel.
I hope that's the same for all the elders and deacons and members of this congregation. I hope for those of you who are new and you just joined us that you'll see that that's what the vision is. We don't want to build a mega church. We don't want to have a great organization. We want to communicate Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter gets distracted, verses 20 to 23. What about John? What about him? The Lord says, that's none of your business. It's my business. Don't you be distracted by unnecessary worries and speculations about the future or God's secret will for others. You don't know, and we don't know, what God has in store for each one of us. We just need to recognize that as Lamentation says, it is because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You and I have to do this maybe all the time. But today gives us a special opportunity to think about what, what am I doing here? Why am I in this church? And this may seem a really, really rotten thing to say, but if you're here just for yourself, if you're here for what you can get, and you profess to be a Christian, I'm not sure you should be here. Because the attitude should be, what can I give to Jesus Christ? It's not, we can't quantify it and say you should be giving X percent or you should be doing so much in terms, there are far too many of us who are motivated by guilt and do too much. We should just simply be asking, do I love the Lord? And what does the Lord want me to do? See, that last verse, I think this is amazing. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. McShane used to pray and believe that the latter days of this church would be greater than the former. And the former were this place packed with a thousand people and many, many people being converted. There are far too many of us who like the idea of having a church that's a certain size, that suits us, that we know everyone, that it fits with what we want, meets our needs. And I think the Lord looks on us in horror and says, do you love me? Well, I love the people of the city. I weep over the city and you have to do the same. No room, says John, in the whole world for the books that would be written with all the wonderful things. Now, it's hyperbole. Of course it is, and it's an exaggeration. But sometimes we so limit the blessing of God because we can't see. We, our God isn't big enough. We, we, can't, we, we find it so difficult to believe. We are going to go through enormous troubles and difficulties. Personally, individually, collectively, we will. But we should realize that God has us here for a purpose, and that purpose is to prosper and to bless, not to curse. And you and I, when we talk about a pledging aspect, a pledging Sunday, we 
must, as we respond to what God says, we must be the, the, the people who, who cry out to God and who long for his hand to be uh, upon us and commit ourselves to him and just simply answer the question, do I love the Lord or not? Because that's it. That's Christianity. You love the Lord, you're there. May God bless his word to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.